0: This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that unmasks history one day at a time. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're talking about one of the most disturbing acts of protest ever committed on the White House lawn. The day was August 16, 1841. An angry mob gathered outside the White House and burned an effigy of President John Tyler. Most of the rioters were members of Tyler's own political party, the Whigs. The President had just vetoed their bill to reestablish the country's national bank, so they decided to voice their disapproval in the most dramatic fashion they could think of. They gathered on Tyler's front porch and set fire to a crude, scarecrow-like figure that was made to look just like him. The first bank of the United States was championed by Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the Treasury. He believed that establishing a government-sponsored national bank was vital to the young country's financial future. According to him, it would stabilize the nation's credit, provide a repository for federal funds, and handle the job of issuing currency. The bank was ultimately chartered by Congress and approved by President George Washington in 1791. But from the very beginning, many in government, including Thomas Jefferson and Washington himself, were wary of the idea of a federal bank. They worried that such a bank was unconstitutional, as it would force the states to host branches of the bank within their borders in direct competition with banks they chartered themselves. In the end, Washington was swayed by Hamilton's arguments and decided to back the bank bill after all. However, once Thomas Jefferson became president, he and his fellow anti-federalists began to undermine the bank by gradually reducing its power and importance. By 1811, the institution had been so diminished that Congress let the bank's 20-year charter expire and made no attempt to renew it. A second federal bank was later established in 1819, but multiple congressional attempts to recharter it were struck down by Presidents Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. Despite those setbacks, supporters of the National Bank were confident that Van Buren's successor, fellow Whig member William Henry Harrison, would quickly reestablish the bank once he took office. But as you probably know, Harrison never got the chance, as he famously died just 31 days after his inauguration. Upon Harrison's death in 1841, Vice President John Tyler assumed the presidency, establishing a custom of succession that's still followed today. The Whigs expected Tyler to toe the party line and throw his support behind an agenda crafted by Kentucky Senator Henry Clay. However, Tyler, a former Democrat, Wasn't a fan of the Whigs' policy proposals. He had just inherited a highly unstable economy, and throwing a federal bank into the mix would have only increased that volatility. He believed, as others had before him, that a central bank would violate states' rights and would only benefit the financial elite, namely, the private investors who would own most of the bank's shares. The president voiced his opposition well in advance, but his fellow Whigs in Congress refused to listen. Senator Clay's bill passed both houses that summer, and many hoped its success would compel the president to back down and sign it. But he didn't. On August 16th, Tyler vetoed the bank bill and sent a message to Congress explaining why. Before entering upon the duties of the presidential office, he wrote, I took an oath that I would preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. He then went on to say that supporting the Whig's bank scheme would be a violation of that oath, something that he considered, quote, a crime which I would not willfully commit to gain any earthly reward and which would justly subject me to the ridicule and scorn of all virtuous men. Tyler's veto shouldn't have come as a surprise to the bank's congressional backers, but they had convinced themselves that Tyler, an unelected president, wouldn't dare defy the will of his own party. But it turned out that he did dare, and when the Whigs found out about the veto, they took it as a betrayal and flew into a collective rage. Later that night, after several hours of drinking, some members of Congress decided to pay Tyler a visit. They gathered on the White House lawn and started blowing horns and throwing rocks at the building. Then some men fired guns into the air and shouted, down with the veto. The president and his family were awakened by the noise and were said to be quite fearful for their safety as the residents had minimal security and the District of Columbia did not yet have a police force. Thankfully, someone in the upstairs quarters placed lit candles in the windows and the light scared off the mob. However, a few hours later, a second, even rowdier group arrived at the mansion. They brought along a large, life-size doll dressed as President Tyler, which they proceeded to hang by the neck from a tree. Then, they set the figure on fire and left shortly afterward. Other American figures had been burned in effigy before, including John Jay and President James Madison, but such a display of symbolic violence had never happened on the White House doorstep, and certainly not in clear view of the President and his family. One year later, the incident led Congress to expand the small security force in D.C. into a proper police force, ensuring that the city would also be patrolled at night. In the weeks that followed the riot, Senator Clay helped put together a new central bank bill with a few minor adjustments. Once again, both houses of Congress passed the bill, and once again, President Tyler killed it with a veto. That time, the Whigs didn't form a drunken mob or set any dolls on fire. Instead, they voted to formally expel the president from their ranks, making him, as Henry Clay put it, a president without a party. The hits didn't stop there either, as not long after, Tyler's entire cabinet resigned in protest. Except, that is, for Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State. By the time Tyler left office, his political career was essentially over. He had paid a steep price for standing up to his own party, but in doing so, he remained true to his oath and to his own conscience. That commitment to country over party is something that every president should strive to live up to even now, whether the mob likes it or not. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.